Can one local church be used for the spread of the gospel among all nations? This is precisely what God did with the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt, delivered weekly. If you're new to the podcast, you can find thousands of other free gospel-centered resources, like our brand new daily devotional podcast with David called Pray the Word. You can find all that on our website, Radical.net. On this message, David Platt points out five characteristics of the church at Antioch that should inform the mission of every local church. There's one big takeaway from today's sermon, and that's that the spread of the gospel by God's people is ultimately dependent on His power. You can download free discussion questions for today's sermon, radical.net forward slash highlight. Well, here's David with the sermon titled, The Church That Changed the World, from Acts chapter 13. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, or somebody else around you has one you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Acts, chapter 13. Acts, chapter 13, and as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you particularly in Montgomery County and Prince William and Loudoun as McLean gathers together in different places. It's good to be back with you. Before we dive into the Word, I want to take you on a quick journey with me to Bihar, India, one of the most spiritually and physically impoverished places on the planet. So just to give you a little picture of Bihar, Bihar is a state in India about the size of Virginia. The only difference is Virginia has about 8 million people and Bihar has about 100 million people. So 100 million people spread out across 45,000 different villages. The majority of these people are extremely poor, millions of them living in desperate poverty. The majority of them unreached by the gospel. Bihar is approximately 0.1% Christian. So most Indians in Bihar have been Hindu for generations. The region I was in, uh, the story I'm about to tell you is the death rate in that region is about 5,000 people per day, which means that every day in that region, approximately 4,995 people plunge into an eternal hell. Most of that haven't ever even heard the gospel. But I want to introduce you to two followers of Christ. Their names are Anil and Hari. So Anil is a school superintendent and Hari is a chicken farmer. So three years ago, these brothers in Christ were struggling in their faith, trying to share the gospel but not seeing any fruit from it around them. And they went to some training that we helped provide in disciple making. And at this training, they were encouraged, uh, studying Luke chapter 10, seeing Jesus and his disciples out two by two. So they were encouraged to get together with somebody else or get in a group of two Go into a village where there's no Christian, no church. And when you go into that village, the first person that comes up to you to talk with you, just say to them, hi, we're here in the name of Jesus, and we'd like to pray for your village. How can we pray for your village? So this is what they're being told to do at this training. Well, Anil and Hari look at each other saying, this will never work. Then they looked at each other and said, nothing we do ever works. So we might as well try it. So they got together one day, they go into this village, 
where they know there's no Christian, no church, not hard to find in Bihar. So they're walking to the village. Well, most of the time they're walking to the village, nobody even talks to them. And they're thinking, this, this doesn't work. So they get to the end of the village. Finally, a guy comes up to them and says, hey, what are you guys doing here? And so Anil and Hari start their prescripted line. Hi, we're here in the name of Jesus. And we would. Before they could get out the rest of their line, the guy stops them and says, did you just say Jesus? I've heard a little bit about him. Can you guys tell me more? To which Anil and Hari look at each other and say, yes, we can tell you more. And so they start to share the gospel. Well, as they start sharing, the guy stops them. And this is where Anil and Hari are thinking, oh, it's about to go off the rails. But the guy stops them and says, wait a minute. I really want my friends and family to hear what you have to say about Jesus. Can you wait until I gather them together and then tell all of us? And Neil and Harry look at each other and say, yes, that would be fine. And so they follow this guy to his house. He sits him down outside his house. He goes and gets a group of friends, family members, brings them around. So they gather around Neil and Hari. They sit in front of him and say, now please tell us about Jesus. So Neil and Hari start sharing the gospel. And this is the first time these people have ever heard who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Long story short, over the next two weeks, about 20 people in that village come to faith in Christ. Which is, so yes, that's glorious and clap-worthy, but the story gets better after that. So Anil and Hari look at these 20 new believers and say, all right, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get in groups of two, and you're going to find some other villages, and you're going to go into the village, and when you go in, you're going to use this line, and you're not going to think it's going to work, but worked on you guys, so uh, you're going to go do the same thing. We're going to see what happens. So that was three years ago. Three years later, churches have started in 350 different villages in that part of Bihar, India. So I, I sit around with Anil and Hari, and I've asked them, I said, guys, how do you explain what you have seen? And these guys just smile and shrug their shoulders and say, only God could do this. So here's the deal. I see things like this around the world, and I can tell you other similar stories, and I praise God for what he's doing in places over there like that, at the same time, I've got to be honest with you. I long to see God do that kind of work here. Amen. Don't, don't you? I don't want to just hear about what God is doing in power over there. I want to be a part of his power at work here. I want to see movement of disciples being made and churches being multiplied here in a way that causes us just to shrug our shoulders and say, only God could do this. And I share that story because as I've been walking through this journey of 40 days of prayer with you, for you, as I'm serving in this interim role, this has become my prayer for McLean Bible Church. I look at this church. I see God's grace all over it in so many ways for so many years. And I've just been driven to pray that God would pour out his grace on this place, among this people, in such a way that disciples might be made and churches might be multiplied in and across Metro DC and across the world through this church. Now, 
I know that might sound idealistic to some, but I don't believe it is if we believe the Bible. So I want to take you to Acts chapter 13 today, and I want to show you one church that literally changed the world. And that is not an over-exaggeration. In Acts chapter 13, we're about to see a global movement start with one moment in one local church. As a result of this moment that we're about to read about at Antioch in Acts chapter 13, over the next 200 years, the entire Roman world would be reached with the gospel. And over the next 2,000 years, that gospel would go to most every single country in the world. And this movement on missions started with one local church. You see, up to this point in the book of Acts, no church had intentionally sent people out for the spread of the gospel to other places, among the nations. Individuals had gone different places. Some people had been scattered due to persecution. We see that in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8. But until now, no church in the New Testament had willfully, deliberately sent out members to people and places that the gospel had not gone to yet. But all of that was about to change with the church at Antioch, with this local church. So I read this text. I've been studying it this week, and I just think about this local church. I think about McLean. I think about the opportunity this church has to see disciples made and churches multiplied across Metro DC and around the world. If 20 believers in Bihar, India, filled with the Spirit of God, proclaiming the gospel of God, could see what they have seen, how much more with 10,000 believers at McLean, filled with the Spirit of God, proclaiming the gospel of God. So in that light, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge this church today with five characteristics of the church at Antioch that I pray will be characteristics of McLean Bible Church. So let's read the text. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. This is the word of God. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Oh, 
So much here, so little time. So let's, let's dive in. Five characteristics of the church at Antioch that I pray will characterize McLean and all of its campuses. Number one, they were united around the word of God. They were united. This church was united around the word of God. So the passage starts with a list of leaders in the church at Antioch. And it's diverse. You got Barnabas, who we've seen before in Acts. He's a Levite from Cyprus. You have Simeon called Niger. Literally, Simeon called the black one. He's dark-skinned, likely from North Africa. You've got Lucius of Cyrene. You have Manaean, who the text says is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch is the king who beheaded John the Baptist, who played a part in the crucifixion of Christ. So it's a little unclear, but Manan was brought up with him as a foster brother, close friend, something along those lines. And then you got Saul, former persecutor of Christians. That is quite a list. Different leaders from different places with different backgrounds, but notice what united them together. They were prophets and teachers of God's word. And this is a theme we see over and over again in Acts all across the New Testament. We see over and over again this one foundation in the church, the word of God, proclaimed and taught. The church at Antioch was not built on Paul or Barnabas or Lucius or Simeon or Manan. It was built on the word, which is a constant reminder for McLean Bible Church, right? Isn't it good to be reminded in the very name of this church that McLean is not built on Lon Solomon or Dale Sutherland or Mike Kelsey or anybody else. This church is built on the word of God. Doesn't even matter what pastor is teaching as long as they're teaching the word of God. God's word unites leaders in the church and God's word unites members in the church. Back in Acts chapter 11, when we were introduced to the church at Antioch, we saw diversity there. The church wasn't just made up of Jewish believers, but also of Greeks, of Gentiles and Jews, which was an anomaly in the first century to see Jews and Gentiles together, eating together, fellowshipping together, worshiping together. How did that happen? Well, they weren't looking to their ethnicity to unite them. They were looking to God's word, specifically the gospel, to bring them together. So I look out across this church in different campuses. I see all kinds of different people. I see people who grew up in or around Metro DC, many who grew up far from here, many in entirely different countries. I see people who grew up in the church, others who grew up far from the church. I see people with different political opinions, different ideological positions. And it's always good to remember that what unites us in the church is not our background, our history, our ethnicity, our ideology, or our politics. What unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God upon which we stand together. What unites us... And this is really important, especially for those of you who are not Christians right now. What's really important for you to hear? Well, one, we are glad you're here. We want you to know that what unites this gathering together is not our politics. It's not our preferences. What unites us is the fact that we are all sinners who have rebelled against a holy God. And it's looked different in each one of our lives. But at the core, it's rebellion against him. But we have learned from the Bible that God loves us so much that he's not left us alone in our sin. He has sent his son 
to pay the price for our sin, to die on the cross, to take the judgment due our sin upon himself, and then to rise from the dead in victory over sin, so that by putting our faith in him, we, rebels against God, have been forgiven of all of our sin and have been reconciled to God. This is what makes the church. So this is what brings the church together in this area. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our history. It's not our ideology. And it's not any political position in a government. No, what unites us is the power of the gospel. And we invite you to put your faith in Christ. Be forgiven of your sin. Be reconciled to God. This is what makes the church the church. They were united around the word of God. Second characteristic, they were enthralled with the glory of God. They were enthralled with the glory of God. The text says, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So notice where this movement on mission started. It started with worship, which is really significant. What we're about to see in the book of Acts is the expansion of the church to the nations. People's lives are going to be changed. Churches are going to be planted. The gospel is going to spread across the known world in the chapters that follow. And it all started with the church at Antioch worshiping. So see it. Witness to the world is born in worship in the church. People who are passionate about exalting the glory of God will be passionate about spreading the gospel of God. It's worship that leads to witness, which makes sense, right? I mean, think about this gathering in this place. We sing a song like, this is amazing grace. He's worthy. So doesn't it just make sense if we actually believe that we're singing, this is amazing grace, he's worthy, to then scatter from this place telling people all around Metro DC, you got to know this grace and give him glory. It's worship. We believe God is worthy of all glory. So then it just makes sense for us to scatter into Metro DC this week where there are hundreds of thousands of people who we work with and live around who don't know the grace and glory of our God. We want them to know how great and glorious he is. Amen. And it's why we don't stop there. It's why this church must send out to people, to places in Africa. Why? Why, why must we lift our eyes, not just in Metro D.C., but far beyond Metro D.C. to a place like Africa? Well, there's 3,000 animistic tribes in Africa right now that are following all kinds of different spirits and gods that are not worthy of glory. Jesus alone is worthy of glory in every single one of those tribes. This is why we go. It's why this church must send out people to countries like Japan, Laos, Vietnam. There's 350 million Buddhists in those countries who are following Buddha's rules and Buddha's regulations, and Buddha does not deserve their glory. Jesus alone deserves all their glory. Amen. It's why this church must send out people to countries like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Maldives, because there's 950 million Hindus in those countries who are following more gods than you or I can even them. And there's only one God. His name is Jesus, who's worthy of all of their glory. That's why this church must send out people to communist countries like China and North Korea and Laos and 
Cuba, because there's over a billion people who've grown up in atheistic environments that completely deny the existence of God. And there is a God. His name is Jesus, and he's worthy of all of their glory. It's why this church must send out people to hard places like the Middle East and North Africa, Central Asia, because there's over 1.5 billion Muslims who are fasting and giving alms and making holy pilgrimages to Mecca and praying five times a day to a false God. And Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen from the grave. He's ascended on high. And he alone is worthy of glory. And a church who believes he's worthy of that kind of glory will give their lives, making his glory known. Amen. So may it be so at McLean as it was at Antioch. May this church be a people who gather together and worship every week, enamored by, enthralled with the glory of God in such a way that we scatter every week, proclaiming his goodness and his greatness right where we live and then wherever he leads. They're united by the word of God and enthralled with the glory of God. Third characteristic, flowing right from that, they were directed by the Spirit of God. They were directed by the Spirit of God. So verse 2 says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Fasting. The leaders and members of this church had set aside food. Obviously, the text doesn't say how long. Uh, period of time, day, maybe many days. They'd set aside food to seek God. To say to him in the words of Jesus in John chapter 4, uh, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Lord, we, our food is to do your will, to do your work. So here's the church at Antioch. I love this picture. Looking to God for direction, saying, God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to make your gospel, your glory known in the world? Show us where to go. Show us what to do. Show us who to send out. And this is God's design for the posture of his church. God has designed his church to be directed by his spirit on mission in the world, which means God has designed McLean to look to him constantly in prayer and fasting. This church to say, God, more important than even the basic daily necessity of food. We just want to do whatever you want us to do. Show us how to make your gospel known in D.C. Show us how to make your glory known among the nations. Show us what to do, where to go. Show us who to send out. We'll do whatever you say. This is where I want to go ahead and put this next characteristic of the church up here and then I'll tie them together. So they were directed by the Spirit of God and they were surrendered to the mission of God. Directed by the Spirit of God and surrendered to the mission of God, they were willing to do whatever God said to do. So get the picture. They're worshiping and fasting, saying, God, show us where to go. Show us what to do. Show us who to send out. And what does the Spirit say? Verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now that is quite a verse. And you realize what just happened. Just put yourself in the shoes of church members at Antioch. You got the Apostle Paul in your church. He's a pretty sharp dude. He wrote most of the New Testament. You got Barnabas. Everybody loves this man. He's the encourager. Everybody loves to be around. Both of these guys came to the church at Antioch early on, started teaching there. Needless to say, were well received. But now the Holy Spirit says, I want them to go. And if you're a member of that church, you're thinking, no. <laughs> I 
I mean, are we sure the Holy Spirit said Saul and Barnabas, not Sam and Patrobus? I mean, they kind of sound the same, right? Like, and let's just be honest, Sam over here is a little more expendable in the church of Antioch. He's a great guy, but uh, we can do without Sam. Uh, if Saul, Paul leaves, we got, we got problems, right? And here's the beauty of the church at Antioch. They were willing to send out their best. The church at Antioch knew that you don't negotiate with the Spirit of God. You obey the Spirit of God. This church so directed by the Spirit of God, so surrendered to the mission of God, that as soon as the Spirit said to send out their best, the very next verse says, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And in this, the church at Antioch has something to teach us. Follow closely with me here. What if the success of a church is not determined by how many people come into a building, but by how many people leave that building to take on the world with the gospel? What if the most important metric in a church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity? Now, don't get me wrong. It is awesome to think about the thousands of people who are gathered together at McLean today and gather on a weekly basis. But what if it's far more important to think about the potential thousands of people sent out from McLean for the spread of the gospel around the world? This is a powerful picture in Acts 13. The church laying hands on members, even leaders who they love, saying, we're sending you out for the spread of the gospel to places and people where it's not yet gone. And the success of the church at Antioch would no longer be measured merely by what happened at Antioch. The success of the church at Antioch would reach far beyond Antioch for the glory of God's name. So this is where... I want to pause and think about this at McLean and praise God for how this has happened. I want to introduce you to three people as they join me up here. And it is pure providence, God's direction, that they would be here on this Sunday when we're looking at this text. So, the first two, to my right, your left, are Liz and Morris. So those who've been around McLean the longest know Morris and Liz. Liz's family was one of the founding families at this church. So Will and Mary Roundy. Three years after McLean was founded, the Roundies were sent out from McLean to be missionaries in South America. And just in case you have this picture of a young idealistic missionary couple, Will Roundy was 50 years old when he took his family overseas. Liz, the youngest, was 13 when they started training, 16 when they moved. So in God's direction, uh, Liz came back, was doing Bible school and training here to go overseas and met Morris, and they were married at McLean in 1975. So they're married in McLean soon thereafter. So 40 years ago next month, 
Liz and Morris were sent out to serve in South America. So they they were sent out to serve in South America among an Indian tribe, remote Indian tribe. This is a tribe that had no written language. But God used Liz and Morris to develop one. So if we could just maybe pause for a second there and just let that soak in. Like, anybody else in the room developed an alphabet before? Like, not learn one, like, made one up. <laughs> and people are using it. So they created a written language for this tribe, taught the people to read and write, and then translated the New Testament into that language. Here's the New Testament in that language. And then translated over 5,000 verses of the Old Testament into that language. Working on Proverbs right now, but this is the Old Testament as it is right now. And created discipleship curriculum around it. I've planted 12 different churches, seen half of that entire tribe hear the gospel when they have never, had never heard the gospel before. Today, this brother and sister are the only people, we're active workers outside of that tribe who speak the language of that tribe. In 2006, they were kicked out of tribal territory by the government, which might lead some to think that the work was over, but far from it. The tribal church elders told Liz Morris, we, God's word cannot be stopped. You keep translating the Bible and discipleship lessons. We'll take care of the work, even if you can never come back in. And this tribal church is now sending out missionaries to other tribal groups around them. And then there's Rudy over here. So Rudy grew up in Northern California stabbed his first person at the age of 13. Was in and out of prison until he was 34. Led a gang. Was locked up in many different prisons. Spent uh, years in solitary confinement. I was actually, and he was recounting the, the story before the gathering. To me, he was stabbing a guy in the prison yard when a guard shot at him. That led to that guard giving him a Bible, and Rudy found himself locked up in solitary confinement where he fell on his knees and became a follower of Christ. When Rudy was released from prison, he met Carlos, the missionary McLean partners with in Mexico. And Carlos asked him to come help him in the work there. For the last 16 years, Rudy has been involved in leading churches, a rehab center, a mission for homeless men. He's married. He and his wife have an 11 and a 10-year-old. And the reason he's here this weekend is because McLean is giving him in the ministry there in Mexico the keys to two of the McLean vehicles that are out back here. In these brothers and sisters, I give you a picture of how God is using McLean in ways far beyond D.C. for his glory. 
And this is even an incomplete picture. So Morris and Liz are just one part of the roundy picture when the roundies were sent out. So three out of Liz's four siblings are serving or have served overseas as missionaries. I just want to challenge McLean to send out multitudes more Will and Mary Roundies and Morris's and Liz's and support all the more Rudy's for the spread of the gospel, not just here, but far from here. These, these guys are going to come back up at the end of the service for us to pray together. But would you just join me in giving God glory for his grace in and through these brothers and sisters. not a coincidence that they would be in town on this weekend in Acts 13. A church united by the word of God, enthralled with the glory of God, directed by the spirit of God, abandoned the mission of God. And then last characteristic of the church at Antioch, they were enabled by the power of God. They were enabled by the power of God. Sent out, so here's the picture, sent out from the church by the Spirit. Paul and Barnabas go down to Seleucia, then to Cyprus. The story goes, as they're preaching the gospel on that island, the proconsul, which is another word for the governor, so the leader of the island, says, I want to meet with you, hear what you are saying. So all of a sudden, these nobodies from Antioch have just been summoned to meet with the governor to share the gospel. When they get there, there's this guy named Bar-Jesus, which technically means son of Joshua. He's later called Elamus. He's a magician and a false prophet. So Paul and Barnabas start sharing the gospel with the governor, and David Copperfield over here tries to keep the governor from believing it. So what does Paul do? He stares him down. At the end of verse 9, you can only imagine this gaze. Paul just looks at him and says, you son of the devil enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Paul is not beating around the bush here. He's going right for the jugular. Paul says, stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord. Behold, God's hand is on you right now. He's about to blind you. And immediately, Elamah's sight goes dark. And Paul turns back to the governor and says, now where were we? <laughs> and the governor says, I believe this gospel. <laughs> Oh, don't, don't miss what we're seeing here. This is so important. So a church that is serious about spreading the gospel will face fierce spiritual warfare. Don't think for a second that the more McLean gives itself to mission in D.C. and the ends of the earth, the easier it will get. The more McLean gives itself to mission in D.C. and the ends of the earth, the harder it will get. There is an adversary, the devil, who is dead set on keeping this church from proclaiming this gospel. He doesn't want the gospel going forward in D.C. He doesn't want the glory of God going to the nations. So a church that's serious about proclaiming the gospel, the glory of God, will find itself on the front lines of all-out spiritual war. We know this. Satan is working constantly to keep us, you, me, 
Members across this church, silent with the gospel. He's working to keep us quiet before coworkers, quiet before neighbors, and quiet before friends and family members even. Satan is working to keep this church from sending people out for the spread of the gospel to the nations. But notice verse 9. So right before Paul looked into Elamus' eyes, what did the Bible say? Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, oh, don't miss this. There is a filling of God's Spirit that accompanies God's people with power when they're on the front lines of mission. A filling of God's Spirit and power that enables God's people to do what they can never do on their own. That enables them to speak with boldness, to see God do what only God can do. And here's the amazing thing. The exact same Spirit who filled Paul in that moment is the exact same Spirit who is dwelling in every follower of Christ in this gathering right now. Amen. That is an awesome thought. It's the same spirit that's going to be with you at your workplace this week and your neighborhood this week. That opportunity you have to share the gospel. The same spirit, same power at work in you. And God, by the power of his spirit, wants to enable you to do what you could never do on your own. Wants to enable this church to do what this church could never do on its own. I was in Indonesia, so the largest Muslim-dominated country in the world. I was teaching at a seminary. The students in this seminary, in order to graduate from the seminary, are required to plant a church in a Muslim community with at least 30 new baptized believers. So in order to graduate, you've got to plant a church in a Muslim community with at least 30 new baptized believers. I'm, lo- I'm speaking at their graduation. Every single student in front of me has done it. The most somber moment at the graduation was when we had a moment of silence for two of their classmates that had died at the hands of Muslim persecutors in the process. So I was talking to one of the graduates named Raiden. Raiden shared his story with me. Raiden said, uh, before I became a Christian, I was a fighter. He said, I, he, said he knew ninja, jujitsu. He named some other techniques for taking people down, and I was just listening and making a mental note, don't mess with Raiden. So uh, <laughs> Raiden tells me a story. He tells me a story about one day, he said, I was, I was sharing the gospel in an unreached village with people who had never heard of Jesus, and he was in a house sharing Christ with a family when the witch doctor from that village came outside the house. Witch doctors common in villages like this hold spiritual sway over villages like this with their curses, incantations. So uh, Raiden said the witch doctor called him out of the house basically wanting to fight with him. To which Raiden said, my first thought was to walk out and take the witch doctor down. (laughs) But he said when he turned to go outside, he just sensed God say to him, you don't do the fighting anymore. I do the fighting for you. So Raiden said he walked outside, he pulled up a chair, he sat down in front of the witch doctor, and he said to him, I don't do the fighting, my God does the fighting for me. Then Raiden shared what happened next. He said, as the witch doctor started to speak back, he suddenly began gasping for air. He was choking, he couldn't breathe. People came running over to see what was happening, and within a few minutes, the witch doctor had fallen over dead. 
Within minutes, the whole village had crowded around the scene, right, and said, I had never seen anything like this. I didn't know what to do. Raiden said, then I thought, I guess I should preach the gospel. <laughs> so Raiden said, that's what I did. And many people in that village trusted in Christ for the first time that day. Now, here's the deal. I'm not necessarily recommending that particular strategy <laughs> in the church. So I'm not recommending you pull up some chairs and make some pronouncements, but... As I listened to that story, it was a clear reminder to me that 2,000 years ago, when people proclaimed the name of Jesus, it caused the blind to see and the lame to walk and the dead to rise. The name of Jesus had the power to cause evil spirits to flee, to cause even the most hardened hearts to come to God. And the reality is, 2,000 years later, the name of Jesus still has power. What, what other explanation is there for how one lowly church, the church at Antioch, sent out two missionaries and turned the world upside down? The church at Antioch is a testimony to the power of God at work in the world. What other explanation is there for how two guys in Bihar, India, can go into one village and three years later, churches have been started in 350 different villages? The church at Bihar is a testimony to the power of God at work in the world. So what about McLean Bible Church? What does God desire to do in and through this church as a testimony to his power at work in the world, as a testimony to his power at work in D.C. and far from D.C. for the glory of his name? May this church be united around the word of God, enthralled with the glory of God, directed by the spirit of God, abandoned to the mission of God, and enabled by the power of God to do that which can only be explained by his hand at work. Thank you for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. As always, you can find thousands of free gospel-equipping resources at Radical.net. As we mentioned last week, if you have any feedback on podcasts from Radical or ideas for future podcasts that you'd like us to consider, please email us at podcast at radical.net. That's podcast at radical.net. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. Until next time, join us over at radical.net.